welcome to the Infrastructure Podcast. My name is Anthony Oliver and today we're going to find out a little bit more about sub-national transport bodies. What are they, uh, what do they do and why do we need them? Well, for those of you not in the know, they were created by the Cities and Local Government Devolution Act in 2016, and they are, there are now seven sub-national transport bodies covering different regions of the UK. The intention is to provide strategic transport policy leadership at a larger scale than perhaps is possible by the existing local authorities individually. Of the seven currently in existence, only one, Transport for the North, has been given statutory powers to ensure that the North's pan-Northern strategic transport priorities are developed and delivered. The rest operate in shadow form, advising and cajoling, but without formal powers to actually act. That said, they do hold influence, and by bringing together local authorities, businesses, communities and asset owners, they should uh, be able to make significant cross-border difference in terms of where vast sums of devolved and centralised public cash are focused. But the question, I suppose, is do they really do that in reality? Well, to discuss this, it's my pleasure to welcome Martin Tugwell uh, to the Infrastructure Podcast today. Uh, Martin is Chief Executive of Transport for the North, a former leader of England's economic heartland and a past president of the Chartered Institution of uh, Highways and Transportation. Uh, so he probably knows more about SDBs than most. Martin, welcome to the Infrastructure Podcast. Uh, many thanks, Anthony. It's delighted to be able to join you today. Great. Well, Martin, I tried to describe what a subnational transport body is and does. Uh, did I get it right? Uh, I don't know. Maybe uh, give me your description. What are they for? Well, I've been working at a regional level now for the best part of 25 years, and I think we're on my third incarnation of working at a regional level. When I'm trying to explain why we exist, it comes down to me for three things. First of all, there are projects which people are going to collaborate on, the big pan-regional things, things that cross boundaries. In the north, it's things like the A66, but it could be coast-to-coast connections. Then there, there are projects or issues which... Uh, we're all facing where doing it once rather than 21 times leads to efficiencies and effectiveness. And thirdly, is about having a stronger voice for the region. And I mean, if I think about what the power there is, if I think about the first strategic transport plan that TFM published, the Northern Powerhouse Rail proposition was front and centre of that uh, plan. And I'd like to think that because of the voice that the North has, through TFN, it was very instrumental in then getting that taken on board and becoming part of a government investment programme. Okay. I mean, I suppose since SDBs were invented, you know, uh, we've got the Department for Leveling Up and we've got the Leveling Up Funds. I mean, how has this moved, I suppose, the goalposts in terms of regional devolution? Well, I think it's important to just remember that TFN um, and the legislation that set it up was, if you like, a first incarnation of devolution. It was set up explicitly by the government to um, provide devolution to the north, to allow the northern leaders, business and political, to come together to to realise the potential of the north. I know we call it levelling up now, but it's a devolution agenda that's been going since that act was um, was passed. The fundamental point for me about what STBs and what the devolution is, agenda is all about is realising there's a need for change. Um, and a way, the way in which we plan, develop and then implement investment needs to change if we're going to realise that potential and actually uh, deliver on some strategic outcomes. 
Well, we'll get into a bit more uh, a bit later on, I'm sure, whether that potential is actually being delivered. I mean, the trans- transport for the North is the only one, as I said, with statutory powers. I mean, what does that enable you to do that perhaps the others can't? Well, it gives us a, a voice. It gives us a really strong voice. As a statutory body, we've got five general functions not just about preparing the transport strategy, but also about giving advice about how functions are carried out. It gives us the opportunity to actually make recommendations about how um, things can be improved in terms of the efficiency and the effectiveness of the way things are delivered. And it's certainly something that we'll come back to probably with the strategic transport plan revision later this year. The other thing I just perhaps worth exploring or just mentioning at this point is, of course, in addition to being a statutory subnational transport body, we have a form of uh, rail devolution already in the north. So separate from that um, statutory role, we've got a joint responsibility with the department through the Rail North Agreement, where we're working with the department to oversee delivery of both the northern and TPE contracts. Now, whilst the financial responsibility rests with department rightly, What that relationship does mean is that when it comes to business planning, when it comes to understanding and targeting the funds that are available, we've got a much more direct um, relationship with the delivery of those contracts than perhaps we would have had otherwise. So it's both those functions which give us a really strong voice in terms of making a difference for the North. Okay, good, because I suppose in reality, your power, your powers are still quite limited in terms of raising money and funding projects. I mean, the, the, the phrase is no powers have been taken away from local government, uh, but they do have to fit in with your plans. There's a kind of a give and take there. Um, I mean, but uh, uh, the question I suppose on everyone's lips is who's actually in charge? Well, I see TFN's role as being an agent of change. We've got the ability to take a a longer term look to bring the accumulated knowledge that we've got within uh, what's a relatively small but very capable uh, team at TFN and use that as an agent of change for delivery by city regions and local authorities at at uh, at the local level. I think for me, there's kind of... I keep coming back this this we we know certain things to be true we know there's inertia in the system we know we've got multiple funding streams with complicated administration or costing time and money to deliver we know there's a lack of clarity around funding and we know that increasingly it's not just about what you do in transport but what you do in things like um energy and digital what you've got with stbs what you've got with tfn is that evidence-based, vision-led approach to delivering um, change within the system. We don't deliver ourselves, but we enable things to happen differently at a local level. And that means bringing in the private sector, and the private sector's got a huge role in helping you to deliver those visions. Absolutely, and that's why um, you're right. Actually, I go back one step and say it's vital for the private sector to be shaping the vision, and that's why the private sector are members of our board. That's why the voice of business is integral to the work of the board. Um, But we need to harness the knowledge and skills within the private sector to realise that vision. And, And I think we're still sometimes guilty of assuming that the only mechanism or the only way of delivering investment is by the public sector. It's not. We need to work with that private sector. Of course, one of the private sector organisations that you do work very closely with is TransPennine Express, which TFN co-manages with government. Um, I mean, what power of influence do 
uh, SDBs like Transport for the North really have to insist on performance from their private sector partners? Well, if anybody um, has been watching um, the work of our Rail North Committee and indeed the main board, they'll see that uh, we're very much holding um, TPE to account, working with the department in that regard, insisting on having a recovery plan, monitoring and reporting against that plan and, and really shining a light about uh, what needs to happen. I think I think the thing, though, for me is is it's it, we kind of also need to understand Moving forward, we've got to get a better balance. Um, I, mean, I know a number of uh, commentators where we looked at some of the successes of open access operators on uh, the East Coast Main Line, amongst others. But if you look at how the contracts for some of the um, main uh, services are, are managed, I think by common consent, very overly managed from the centre. And you kind of think, well, if actually some of these private operators delivering services had the flexibility that an open access operator have, I think we would be able to see a lot more success in growing the market, which is what we need to do in the north. OK, a little bit more perhaps about what's going on in Transport for the North in a moment. Let's talk about um, what's happening next month, which is this conference, the SDB conference, to bring together um, uh, all seven STBs. It's in Birmingham, 5th of June. I suppose if you want to know a bit more about STBs, that's the place to go. Um, I mean, the website says it's, you know, it's to leverage the collective role in prioritising regionally joined up transport investment and enabling local implementation. I mean, how does uh, that manifest itself in reality? What's the conference all about? Well, this year's conference is really about building on the momentum we gained last year. It's a chance for us to showcase the work we're doing, how it can be deployed more widely and, and the, what the priorities are. So, you know, it's it's showcasing work we've done around EV charging infrastructure, transport related social exclusion, decarbonisation, alternative fuels, rural transport. So it's about what is it that practically we are doing to help set that agenda and, and move it forward. And of course, we'll be joined by um, our national partners, both National Highways and Network Rail, uh, GBR, but also um, recognising that some of the biggest pieces of strategic infrastructure, our ports, our airports, are in the private sector. So we'll have voices from there talking about um, the role of the global gateways and the importance of transport connecting them to and from their markets. Yeah, well, well, it seems to you say that because I get why the SDBs might want to come together to exchange ideas. But I suppose why should the supply chain partners be there as well? It comes back to this theme I've touched on a couple of times already. It's about we know we need change. Um, if I look at the uh, the work we've done as TFN on regional decarbonisation, yes, we can plot a way uh, of getting to nearly net zero by 2045. But boy, we burn through our carbon budget in 10 years. 10 years. And most of the investment for the next five years is already committed. So we've got to, a, a supreme effort in terms of changing the way we go about things. STBs with their evidence-based vision-led approach is very much at the forefront of that. And working with the supply chain, working with our delivery partners is absolutely fundamental because if we've got that sense of where are we trying to get to, people can rally behind the common uh, objective, if you like, and we can actually um, realise that change more quickly. 
Okay, and it's free, so I imagine if you're interested in this, then just get down there uh, 5th, of, 5th of June uh, in the Birmingham uh, NEC. Uh, let's talk a bit more about transport for the north. Uh, your vision is for a thriving north of England where world-class transport supports sustainable economic growth. Um, I mean, how will you deliver this and the other, I suppose, £92 billion of increased GVA that you set out in the draft transport plan? Well, the first thing is that is that we're about to start consultation on the revised strategic transport plan, a 12 week consultation starting in May. Um, it benefits. I, I like to think of it as almost like the next generation of strategic transport plans because it benefits from a very substantial amount of technical research around the economy, the environment and, and communities. It sets out very clear headline outcomes around growing the economy by over 100 billion, uh, reduction in social exclusion, achieving nearly net zero. More importantly for me, it sets out our approach to monitoring and reporting, not unlike the National Infrastructure uh, Commission, uh, and using a set of right share metrics to do that. Now, together, um, that gives us a really clear foundation, a much clearer foundation on which to advise government about what needs to happen in terms of where the funding that is available directed to achieve those outcomes and report on progress because we're not very good sometimes at actually saying, well, how are we doing? What needs to be changed? And recognising sometimes there are what they call black swan events, you know, things that come from left field change the the nature of travel. Uh, And having a, a plan which can reflect that, take that into account, and then adjust the advice to government, I think is going to give that long-term certainty and clarity for investors and communities of the North. But it's it's, it's fair to say that the, the most uh, bits of work that you've done, uh, that anyone's done really, do demonstrate there's a huge amount of value that can be leveraged. Yet we do also see that there are a lot of blockers. I mean, you, you, you also say both Northern Powerhouse Rail and HS2 are integral to the North's future rail network. Yet we're seeing those slow down in terms of delivery i mean where are you for instance with the you know 39 billion pound northern powerhouse rail is it is it dead in the water um well very much not um i think let's just take one step back i'll 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 make the point again i don't think unless we had had tfn uh, and the strategic transport plan we would have got a national government to commit the sum of money that it's committed through the integrated rail plan a long-term commitment to delivery and in fact we've got uh, things like the trans pennine route upgrade in delivery now nine billion pounds worth of investment uh, underway on delivery now what you're right in saying is that our work around the economy is showing there's um, an even bigger prize to be gained. And that's why the Northern Powerhouse Rail Network, in full as we call it, remains fundamental to achieving the full transformation of the North. But it's not just about that. So I think one of the things we've got to get better at is is making sure that when we've got these commitments from government, we work with them to deliver them quickly, efficiently, because there's nothing quite as, uh, as, as, as successful or as, as good in being able to say to the Treasury, look, you said uh, you've given us this amount of money. We said we would deliver it. Hey, guess what? When it comes to rail, you tend to get even bigger benefits than you think you would. So here's a success. Now, the next stage in achieving that full uh, transformation of the North is this project. And I think that's a much stronger, a much more mature way of having a conversation with government because we're talking about 
a 20, 30 year timeline here. Um, and we need to keep moving and building momentum. And that's what we're about at a practical level. Um, you know, we're continuing to work as co-sponsor with the department on um, the business case for uh, Northern Powerhouse Rail. Um, the team I've got, the analysts, are doing the technical work that underpins the strategic outline business case. And we'll look forward to being able to comment and um, on that uh, document when it comes out later this year. But there is, a, uh, I mean, I, I, and I get, I, I hear what you say, but there, there must also be a, a certain sense of frustration in the, the, the delays that are being uh, introduced to that pro- uh, project. Clear disappointment also with the government's recent announcement to delay the northern section of HS2. I mean, what what can you realistically do to influence this outcome when the Chancellor is saying, you know, we need to slow down because you know the 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 UK's economic situation is is worse than it was expected? Well, I mean, what's 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 encouraging is when these announcements were made, there were lots of commentators, not not Transport for the North alone, lots of commentators saying, do you know what? When you delay investment, you end up costing more. Um, you see the benefits coming later, so you actually kind of lose a lot of things. Now, um, our job is to kind of map out the benefits. Um, we set out in the Independent Economic Review that's going to be published later this year about you know actually putting some numbers around if you make the investment, if you actually if you just invest in the north to the same level that you invest in London and the south, which is only an extra twenty one billion pounds a year then the benefit to the UK economy, the benefit to the North, is so much greater than you would understand. You know, we're talking about benefits of sort of two or three times the cost going in. Now, our job is to keep making the argument. Um, It's governments to then consider how to spend the funding available. But it also comes back, Anthony, to the point we touched on earlier. It's also recognising that some of this is not just assuming the only answer is the public sector. It's I'd, I'd much rather we're having a conversation with the private sector that says, here's, here's where we need to get to. These are the things we need to achieve. This is the contribution from the public sector. Now let's have a conversation with the private sector about how we can double up or we can use that money, that commitment from the government to unlock further investment from the private sector. Because do you know what? We keep hearing about how the big companies have got money to invest in infrastructure. Let's have that conversation. Martin, it's a huge number of moving parts that you're managing there. Let's talk a bit more about you for a moment. I mean, you've been CEO at TFM for approaching two years. Before that, you were Programme Director at England's Economic Heartland in the region between Oxford and Cambridge. I mean, what drew you to this role at TFM? You know, it's it's complicated, it's incredibly political, and it's, it's certainly not an easy role. Um, and that's exactly why I'm there. It's it, For me, I mean, I've worked in, as I said, regional planning transport for 25 years or so you know for me I see transport for the north as being if you like the pinnacle of my career it's a huge opportunity immense potential and 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 in TFN you know I've worked with many of my colleagues previously uh, in various through the network of STBs and in other and I know it's a truly fantastic team that we've got and it's an absolute privilege being able to to lead them. What's the most interesting bits of work on your desk right now, today, as we speak then? Well, right now it is, I'm really excited by the strategic transport plan and uh, the revised one, because um, for me, it's the first time we've brought together really serious evidence about the economy, the environment. And for me, what is increasingly, I think, one of the my great concerns, the 
the issue of equity. Um, I know we've still got a long way to go in terms of uh, cracking the the environmental impact of transport, decarbonisation, etc. And but we're making progress there. But when I look at the report we published last year, which said that right here, right now, some twenty percent of the North's population, over three and a half million people are living in areas at high risk of being excluded from society because either they've got no transport, they can't afford it, or the options are just too limited. That is here and now. And so making sure as professionals, we're listening to all needs of a society from different backgrounds, different uh, perspectives. That for me is one of the biggest challenges as moving forward because otherwise, We'll get in. I'm worried that we'll have this uh, divergence. If you know, if if you can afford to invest in environmental uh, transport like uh, electric vehicles, you can make it. But surely we're about reducing the inequalities within our society, and transport is fundamental to that. So that I think is a really important part of what we're doing at the moment. It's why the work we've done on transport-related social exclusion is going to be one of the things we feature at the conference in uh, June. Okay. Um, you've built a career in local government starting as uh, principal engineer in Devon and then in the southeast, um, and then in Oxford. I mean, this is your first job in the north. Um, I mean, how's that been for you? I, I, it's a wonderful experience. I mean, um, you know, what, what a rich history. We're just coming up to... We're not far off now. It's a couple of years until we'll see the 200th anniversary of the first um, railway in this country between Stockton and Darlington. So this is an area which has shaped um, the the transport revolution time and again. So being able to be part of that uh, that legacy and, if you like, build upon it, I think is is, is amazing. And it's an amazing um, uh, area of the country, stunningly beautiful, immensely vibrant cities, um, and an area where, you know, just being part of it is is a real privilege. Sounds like you'd be taking the plunge and actually moving lock, stock and barrel to um, uh, Manchester, Liverpool too? Well, if only it was that simple, Anthony. I think, I mean, one of the things that this role has really opened my eyes to is just how, and, and there's no other way to put it, just how biased the system is towards the, the view that comes out of London and the South East. You know, I've stood on the platform at Lee Station on many occasions a full platform waiting to see a Trans-Pennine Express come in, uh, which is already full and standing. Um, and by the way, we only get two of those trains an hour uh, and they've only got six coaches. So when I hear the narrative being you know, repeated time and again about how, oh, the rail recovery hasn't been so strong, you know, I can only think it's people whose experience of the rail network is their daily commute into Victoria or Waterloo. And frankly, you know, compare and contrast routes which have got four trains an hour, 12 coaches an hour in those trains with our services, a lot of which are, uh, as I said, either hourly or half hourly only and much shorter. It's that, that perspective which is really important. And it's one of the reasons why, unfortunately, I have to spend so much time in London is actually because if you're not visible in Westminster and around Whitehall, then actually that message doesn't get through. Mm. 
Well, which brings me on to a, a few points just to close around, you know, the transport for the future. It's increasingly about breaking down silos to deliver economic, environmental, social benefits. You know, as anyone that was at the recent interchange event, you know, also understands it's about embracing digital technology and the energy transition. I mean, how do you actually make sure people are thinking about rail, but also you know, roads and buses and cars and bicycles, active travel, etc., uh, energy and pulling everyone together to really drive forward those economic benefits well there's a couple of things in there for me Anthony I mean one is um, I, I increasingly kind of started to come to the view that um, when when we're talking as a profession about the silos within our profession I think we are actually guilty of making that worse than it should be we need to make sure we have knowledge and experience about these different modes but I do think sometimes we are as guilty as anybody else about creating those silos. That's why when you come to regional bodies, when you come to things like Transport for the North, and, and increasingly I think of us more, more as an embryonic subnational infrastructure body rather than a subnatural transport body, because the work we've done on EVs and, and looking at the charging infrastructure, we naturally reached out to National Grid, the DNOs, the Energy Savings Trust, as well as the transport authorities, we had that picture which says if you're going to do EVs, you need to understand what's happening with the energy systems. If you want to do stuff around improving um, the availability of uh, app-enabled features, you've got to have ubiquitous digital connectivity. As soon as you start, as we are, thinking about outcomes that are place-based and user-centred, you know what? You break down those silos without any problem at all. And you start empowering the designers and the consultants to start thinking, OK, here's what we need to do now. How do we go about it? That's the way forward rather than yet more studies or yet more specialist sort of approaches. We've got to break these down ourselves. It's in our gift. And. I imagine that going back to the STB conference on the 5th of June, um, that is going to be a key theme, is it? You know, trying to bring people together and, and talking and thinking about these issues in a different way. I, I think it's, it, if I kind of had to summarise it in three words, I think it's about movement, it's about understanding and a commitment. So uh, a movement in terms of sharing um, um, uh, what we've done and demonstrating how it can be applied. So movement in terms of doing things differently, understanding about the scale of the challenge, but also the need for pace. The fact we've seen in the pandemic, change is possible. It's not only possible, it can be achieved relatively quickly. And commitment, I think there is a, a need for us individually, collectively, to stand up and to step up to be making a difference because we pride ourselves in knowing the challenges of the environment. We we pride ourselves in knowing the opportunities around uh, things and the need to do things differently. We've got to stand up and be accountable and, nef if necessarily, use the evidence, use the technical uh, skills we've got to set out not only why change is needed, but more importantly for decision makers, and this is what we do through the Strategic Transport Plan, set out a way forward that they can then consider in the round and which we can then get around and deliver to. Martin, best of luck with that. It's it, the, the amount of passion and, uh, and energy that you're going to deliver to that, I'm sure that you cannot possibly do anything uh, but succeed. So many thanks for joining me today. Best of luck on the, on the 5th of June and thanks for joining me today on the Infrastructure Podcast. Thank you very much, Anthony, and I look forward to seeing as many people as possible on the 5th of June in Birmingham. 
great well it's, it's free just go to the website uh google it and it'll uh, it will take you there so thanks very much martin that's all we've got time for today uh but we will have more uh from the infrastructure podcast in the pipeline and more guests to talk to as we continue to probe the big issues faced across the sector if you haven't done so already do check out the new infrastructure podcast website that's www.infrastructure-podcast.com where you will find background information and all the latest podcasts to listen to and to share so thanks for joining us today thanks again to martin i look forward to seeing you all again very soon